0: happened. Uh, Hey, I'm so glad that you guys are here. Um, Really excited. Pastor Rick gave me the perfect on-ramp segue, gateway, uh, because we're going to talk about the Bible today. Uh, It turns out that's a big deal around here. Uh, So before we roll on, I want to do one thing real quick. I just want to pray that God will speak to us through his word, and I also want to pray that he'll kind of till the soil in our hearts. You know how sometimes you just got other stuff. It's not like you don't want to hear from God, it's that there's a lot happening in life and it's Sunday and that means tomorrow's Monday, so it's like soak up the rest while I can and I get all that. So uh, Lord, thank you that you've, you've made a way for us to know you through your word, uh, which says in Hebrews that uh, in this day, in the age of the church, you've spoken to us through your son. That's your, your primary uh, mechanism for speaking to us. And so I pray that you'd help us to uh, uncover a little bit more about who you are and uh, what you have for us through your son. So I pray that you would speak. We're an open book. God, we're, we're ready to receive from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I want to just start with a sticky phrase. Tina's going to throw that up on the screen for me really quick. The phrase is, staying hopeful takes courage. Staying hopeful takes courage. Anybody can go with the flow when things aren't going well. It doesn't take any kind of courage to go, yeah, it's probably not going to work out. Anybody can do that. In fact, that's probably for most of us kind of our natural position, right? We we kind of lower our expectations so we're not disappointed. Anybody can do that. Uh, to assume that you know I failed last time, so I'm probably going to fail this time. That takes nothing of us. Anybody can be negative when hard times come. Anybody can assume the worst. It takes courage to stay hopeful. And today we're going to read about, we're going to talk about uh, from chapter 16 of the story, uh, a couple of people who had incredible courage. And we're able to bring hope to an entire nation of people because of it. Uh, most of chapter 16 is lifted from two books of the Bible, 2 Chronicles and the book of Isaiah. Uh, we'll talk about those really briefly. So, uh, I had a little trouble with my slides. If you ever used a computer, you know that sometimes you don't just plug it in and everything works. Uh, so, I'm not going to have all the verses up there for you, so that's why I'm telling you where we're going to be. If you have a device with the Bible app on it, feel free to pull that out and, uh, and read along. Otherwise, I'll try, to, uh, I'll try to read in a way that is articulable so that you can hear me. Uh, so the last few weeks, uh, we've been going through this period where God's people are just in a really bad place. There's just some bad stuff happening uh, in the history of God's people. Uh, and a lot of it is caused by this one simple, stupid behavior. They keep worshiping idols, can we, just, can we just have general agreement that, like, worshiping idols is a dumb idea? It's just, it's just, a, bad, it's just a bad idea. Uh, we're all on board with the idea that worshiping idols might even... We could even say it's just really generally stupid. It's just a dumb thing to do. Uh, but we have our own modern-day version of idols. For example, uh, probably just about everybody in this room, if you were to pull out your purse or your wallet or wherever you carry your resources in, you probably have a debit card, credit card, some form of currency... Uh, now, you're probably not going to prop that up on your mantle and bow down and worship it, uh, but would it be fair to say that it's a really important little device in your life? It's a pretty significant thing. If you have the choice between more currency or less, you choose more. I choose more. Uh, that can be an idol for us. Uh, for some people, uh, it's not even necessarily a matter of what they can do with it. It's just a way to keep score. Some people kind of get to that place. That can be an idol in our lives. Uh, How about achievement? A lot of us probably have a a diploma or degree or certificate of some kind somewhere, maybe hanging on a wall, maybe uh, on a shelf somewhere. Uh, There's a reason why when you graduate from something, they give you your certificate or diploma in a neat little folder so that you can prop it up for everyone to look at. That can be an idol. It's not necessarily a bad thing. I would say it's generally a good thing, but it can be an idol. Here's one that's really going to mess with you. How about family? Family can be, for us, an idol. Uh, A pretty virtuous-sounding one, but if you think about what an idol is, it's the thing that we put our hope in. Uh, It occupies the uppermost seat in our affections. Uh, Our family can actually be between us and God. Family can be an idol. I don't like to talk about that one because I love my family, and I know you love yours too. Uh, But the easiest thing in the world for me to do would be to make Randy my idol. In fact, if I didn't try to do that, she normally sits right here. Uh, In fact, if I didn't actively resist it, that would just happen automatically. Probably, for a lot of you, family is the same same kind of thing. Um, So there's all kinds of ways. Probably, I have a whole bunch of examples. We don't need to go uh, on with them. Surmise it to say this. Yes, carving a wooden eagle and putting it on your mantle and bowing down to it and worshiping it as God, that's really dumb and just, at best, it's really weird. Uh, but someday, maybe hundreds of years from now, maybe people will look back and they'll think our idols are dumb too. Possibly, we have them too. We have them too. So God's people are in the middle of this 200-year period where they have just been wrestling with this particular issue, and the outcome of it is—you might remember from two weeks ago—the kingdom has been divided. Uh, there's 12 tribes in the nation of Israel. Ten of them broke away. Uh, from, from the monarchy, and they became the northern kingdom. They, re, they retained the name Israel. Uh, one tribe, Judah, uh, they stayed under the leadership of King Rehoboam, Ray Ray, uh, the son of King Solomon. And, uh, and then eventually, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, kind of folded in there, so all 12 are accounted for. And uh, they've been divided. Northern kingdom is Israel, the southern kingdom is Judah. And in this time period, in these two nations, there's been 38 kings so far. And the Bible says the same thing out of 33 of them. It says they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's not the kind of legacy you want to leave, right? Can you imagine having that on your tombstone? That's what they're remembered for. During this time, this 200-year period of 38 kings, God sends nine different prophets to warn the people that they're headed toward a cliff. You need to stop. You need to turn around. You need to go back. And I even brought with me a warning sign you look at this warning sign, and I think it's pretty explicit. Uh, if you're going this way toward the warning sign, what should you do when you come to that warning sign? Not keep going. You should, whatever you do, you should definitely not walk right past it as if nothing happened. Uh, the warning sign is there to prevent you from impending danger. And God has sent his prophets to be warning signs. And this is what it says in 2 Chronicles 36, verse 15. It says, the Lord... The God of their ancestors sent word to them through his messengers. The word prophet means messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place, but they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people. There was no remedy. Now, this is a place where a lot of people who maybe don't understand the overarching story of the Bible have a problem with what they read. Because it sounds like they didn't do what God wanted, and now he's going to punish them. Does it sound like that? And so if you don't understand the overall context, the larger picture, uh, this is really bad news. But what did he actually do? He sent his prophets to be the warning sign, nine of them, over the course of these 200 years, saying, Stop, go back, turn around. Now, uh, if you're parents or just a decent human, What would you do if you saw a little child walking toward the edge of a cliff? You would shout, hey, stop, don't go over there. But what would you do if they didn't listen? You would have to correct for them, wouldn't you? Like that would just be the reasonable thing to do. And that's exactly what God is doing right here. He's doing exactly what a loving parent would do to their child. Remember what Elijah said Uh, last week? Elijah had this showdown with the prophets of Baal. and, uh, And he was calling on God to show his power. But he didn't call on God to show his power, so everybody would know they're in trouble now. This is what he said, 1 Kings 18, 37. He's praying, God, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. He doesn't want to punish them. He wants to call them back home. He wants to bring them back to safety. That's what he's trying to do through his prophets. He wants his children to stop playing near the edge of the cliff and come back over here where it's safe. And the prophets are God's warning sign. Now, uh, we have our own form of idols, and God is constantly, and by constantly, I mean constantly. What's up, buddy? Did you lose your mama? There she is. It's all good. (laughs) God is constantly doing the same for us, calling us to turn our affection away from our idols so that we can walk in his blessing and his protection. Uh, Now, uh, the things that I mentioned are not inherently idols. Uh, money is not inherently an idol. Certainly family is not inherently an idol. Achievement is not inherently a bad thing. Uh, but think about it this way. If you're married, uh, if, you, if you want God to bless your marriage and protect your marriage, uh, what should you do? You should do it his way. If you want his blessing, you should do it his way. That's what he's calling them to do. Turn away from their idols so that they can walk in his blessing And protection well the northern kingdom they don't listen Uh, and eventually because of their outright rebellion they fall to the Assyrians Uh, now we uh, a lot of us probably have some familiarity with familiarity with the Roman Empire Uh, you know and during the time of Christ and for several hundred years before and after they were really the dominant world power they ruled the known world the Assyrians were the Romans before the Romans they were the dominant power of their day and they have come down and just wiped out the northern kingdom. Uh, they had an army of about 185,000 soldiers, which in their day was just massive. Uh, it would have been like New York Yankees versus Meade Panthers, something like that, or New York Yankees versus Seattle Mariners. It's going to be a wipeout. You know what I'm saying? Okay, sorry. Yeah, my dad's not here today. He would have been really hurt about that. But, uh, the Israelites have just rejected God. And so what he does is he just removes his protection from them the northern kingdom falls. Now, the southern kingdom, they're apparently smarter. Judah is a relatively small nation, just the tribe of Judah and Benjamin kind of folded in there. Uh, They're a little bit smarter because they see what's happening. They see the Assyrians literally coming their way, and they think, hey, I don't like where this is going. Uh, maybe, Maybe we should turn a different direction. And there's a prophet on duty in their day named Isaiah. Now, this gets a little confusing because... Uh, the story that we've been using is in chronological order, but if you were to just take a Bible off the shelf, it's not in chronological order. So uh, the actual events that are happening right now, they happened in the 8th century BC. Uh, the book of Second Chronicles that we're reading from, which is a historical document that tells the story, was actually not written until the 5th century, so a few hundred years later by a guy, by a guy named Ezra. Isaiah is the prophet on duty, and he's writing at the time to the people in the 8th century. And the part that makes it confusing is that those books are in reverse order in the Bible. Uh, So just know that when we read from the book of Isaiah, it's actually Isaiah's words to the people of the day. When we read from 2 Chronicles, it's a historical document chronicling the events that happened in that time period. So Isaiah comes... And he, he begins his public ministry by communicating to the southern kingdom, hey, that mess that you see happening to the northern kingdom, the way they're being wiped out, uh, that's coming for us if we don't change directions here, if we don't heed the warning sign and start going a different way. And these are Isaiah's words to Judah, the southern kingdom. Jerusalem staggers, he says. Jerusalem is the capital city of the nation of Judah. Jerusalem staggers. Judah is falling. Their words and deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. The look on their faces testifies against them. Uh, You ever caught somebody red-handed and they had the look on their face? The look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. They have brought disaster upon themselves. If I'm going to get a word from God, that's not the one I want. Uh, he's basically saying, hey, the Assyrians are coming for you because you have openly rejected God. It's like this. Imagine the people of Judah all lined up on the edge of the Grand Canyon. Has anybody ever been to the Grand Canyon? Surely uh, a few in this society. Yeah, several of you. Uh, they're lined up uh, along the edge of the Grand Canyon. I've never been there, but one thing I know is that all along the edge, there are signs posted that say, hey, dummy, this is a sheer cliff. Don't get too close. They're all over the place. Isaiah is the guy who comes along and pounds that sign in the ground and says, hey, you're going to fall. You need to back away. Now, we look at it, and we could think, man, you guys are idiots. Stop playing with the idols. Like a metal cow. They literally crafted metal cows. This happened twice in their history, and they worshiped it as God. But listen, the Old Testament story of God's people and their idols, this is the first blank on the card that was on your seat. The Old Testament story of God's people and their idols, that's our warning sign. Okay, that's, that's our warning sign. As you're reading through the Old Testament, it's just this narrative for the most part about, uh, about this nation of Israel and now Judah. Uh, and it's like, what is the relevance of this to me? They're us. They are us. In a different context, in their day, they do the same things that we do over and over again. The Old Testament story of God's people and their idols is our warning sign. Think of it this way. We all know people uh, who just can't seem to follow warning signs. Uh, Like, uh, we all know that person who just keeps slacking off at their job, they're gone half the time, they show up late the other half of the time, and they know they're probably gonna lose their job eventually, but can't heed the warning sign. Uh, We all have known people who... Uh, have just, they know, like if they keep nursing this low-grade addiction on, it's going to get bigger and more problematic and it's going to have drastic effects on their family, but they just can't seem to turn around and go the other direction. Uh, there's a thousand ways that could kind of play out. Here's one that happens to a lot of us all the time. Uh, You ever had somebody in your life that just like, they just rubbed you the wrong way and you just kind of like nursed and rehearsed that angry thought over and over and you had like these imaginary confrontations in your mind and then eventually you just had this huge like oak tree of bitterness growing out of your heart that you couldn't get rid of? Uh, We all know if I keep nursing anger and resentment, it's gonna turn into bitterness, but nonetheless, there's the sign, yet we often proceed. That's exactly what they do, and they're our warning sign. God is calling us back to him, away from the cliff, because he knows that sin will be destructive. Now, I use the imagery of the cliff because it makes sense out of the idea of repentance. The word repentance or repent literally means to turn and go the other direction. That's that's what it actually means. When we repent of our sin, we turn away from it. God is calling his people, and by extension, us, to turn away from our sins. Stop playing at the edge of the cliff. Go the other direction. Does that sound like an angry and punitive God who's looking to punish people? I don't think it does. I think it sounds like what a caring, responsible dad would do. That's what he's happening. So this story of God's people and their idols, it, it sounds so weird, worshiping idols. Like I can't even get my head around how strange it would be to just like worship and bow down to an inanimate object, but it's our warning sign too. So 33 of 38 kings, uh, they've been evil. The good news is, that means there's five that were not. There's five that were good kings. One of them is a guy named Hezekiah. Hezekiah sees what's happening in the northern kingdom. He sees that Judah is playing on the same cliff. He sees that, man, the fall is gonna be a bummer. So he calls the nation to change their course now. He immediately rids the entire nation of Judah, all of their idols. He calls all the people to repentance. He calls all the people to turn back to God. And the people have this one concern. Well, the northern kingdom's already fallen. We've been doing the same thing. They're concerned, okay, it's too late. Assyria's right here. They're they're at our doorstep. Their army is marching against us. And this is where we really see Hezekiah's true colors. We find out who he is because he's got this pressure of the Assyrian army pushing down on him. He's got the pressure of all the people looking to him for the answer. He's got the pressure of the fact that he just told all the people, hey, if we turn to God, he'll save us. And now he's like, man, God, I hope you, I hope you do this. Uh, he's just feeling this, feeling this pressure. 2 Chronicles 32, 7. This is what he said to the people. Okay? Try, to, try to get your head around this. This is so, so amazing. This is our, our critical verse for the day. He said to the people, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him, for there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. Watch this next sentence. And the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah the king of Judah said. Hezekiah's point is, us versus them is bad news. God versus them is not a problem. That's God versus them is fine. Sometimes we kind of think like the battle between good versus evil is like back and forth and hopefully somehow there's like an escape hatch for the good guy. Uh, somehow good will overcome. But, but here's the picture that the Bible really describes. In the battle of good versus evil, especially if you read the book of Revelation, it's, it's just clearly spelled out. The battle wages until God says it's over and then it's over then he just ends it and wins. That's what happens right here. That's what happens in our daily battles. God will let those things go on sometimes to refine us, to build character. Sometimes we have to let our own children struggle their way through things so they can learn. God will let that happen. But rest assured, when he decides it's over, it's over. The battle is over at that point. Now notice that the people gained confidence from hearing the words of a courageous and hopeful person. The people gained confidence from hearing his words. A person who believed that God was going to come through. Don't discredit the power your words can have. Uh, your, your words could be the thing that flips somebody from thinking I can to thinking I can't. Which, by the way, whichever one of those things you think, you're probably right. Your words could be the thing that flips someone from I can to I can't. Your words in your internal voice could be the thing that flips you from. I can't to I can, or vice versa. People who have great faith, this is the second blank in your card, people who have great faith make others brave. What a great thing to have said about you, that you made others brave. People who have great faith make others brave. People who have great hope in the Lord give others courage. Anybody can say, yeah, man, that stinks. I'm sorry. That's probably not going to work out. But people who have great faith give others courage." So the Assyrian army shows up at the gate. Uh, something pretty cool happens right here. Uh, the Assyrians, they, they don't really like to battle if they don't have to. They prefer surrender, uh, because it doesn't cost them anything. War is expensive, people die, they, they prefer to surrender. So they kind of initiate this practice of laying siege to the cities. They come and they surround the city and just try to choke it off of food and water and resources until the people give up. So this is what they do in Jerusalem. They lay siege to it. Hezekiah uh, is just is so smart. What he does, he actually digs a tunnel through under the city uh, to actually have a source of fresh water. Uh, the tunnel is really cleverly named Hezekiah's Tunnel. Uh, it was actually lost to history, but it was dug up again in 1938. You can actually go there today, and the water flows into a place called the Pool of Shiloh. Uh, they lay siege... And, uh, and they send in Hebrew-speaking uh, officials from their army. Uh, they try to start a propaganda battle, if you will. And this is what it says. This is what they say when they come into the city, the message they're spreading. Second Chronicles thirty-two thirteen. They come and say to the people, Do you not know what I and my predecessors have done to the peoples of other lands? Were the gods of those nations ever able to deliver their land from my hand? Who of all the gods of these nations that my predecessors destroyed has been able to save his people from me? How then can your God deliver you from my hand? Now, do not let Hezekiah deceive you and mislead you like this. Do not believe him, for no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my predecessors. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand?" Don't listen to Hezekiah. He's just trying to tell you what he's supposed to say. Don't listen to that nutty preacher guy, Isaiah. He's just saying what he's supposed to say. Don't listen to that. You're going down. You might as well surrender. Look how big my army is. This is how deception works. Because when you're in a tough spot, when you're discouraged, when you're feeling the pressure, you don't think clearly. And if deception can come in and uh, prey on you and Satan can tell you that all is lost you might as well give up, you can't win, then the battle can be won on the battlefield of the mind with no bloodshed. But let me ask you something. Satan comes and he says, "Uh, you're going to lose. You're overwhelmed. You don't have a chance. This isn't going to work out. We're like halfway through the Bible right now in the story. Does that sound like something that God has ever said to anyone? No. That's the exact opposite of what God would come and say to his people. But this is how deception works, because if you're too discouraged to turn and go another direction, the battle is won, or lost, as it were. And this is their propaganda battle. They're trying to win on the battlefield of the mind. The Assyrians are at the gate, and Judah has a choice between faith or fear. The choice is that they can just give up, they can surrender, they can become slaves to the Assyrians, or they can take a trust fall, uh, back into God's arms. You familiar with the trust fall? This is what the trust fall usually looks like for God's people. Go ahead and play that, uh, that video for us, Tina. You know? This is how they usually do it. God's setting them all up. Trust me. Okay, let's go. Lean on me. And away they go. Yeah, you didn't see that coming, did you? This is what they do over and over. Like, they're awesome at you know, uh, crying out to God when things are going bad, when they're in trouble, and they're really, really good at ignoring God when things are going fine. But have you noticed that it's hard to just walk in a consistent relationship with the Lord? The problem is any type of meaningful relationship takes intent. Walking with God, having a relationship with God takes intentionality, continually surrendering and repenting. Every meaningful relationship takes intentionality. No one accidentally drifts their way into an awesome marriage or into, uh, into a deep, meaningful relationship with their kids. That doesn't happen on accident. Same in our relationship with God. It takes intent, intent. So watch what Hezekiah does. Assyria shows up at the gate, 2 Chronicles 32.20, it says, King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, cried out in prayer to heaven about this. What does Hezekiah do? He grabs a faithful brother... Uh, He grabs someone that he loves and trusts, and they pray. Now, oddly enough, that's exactly what the Bible says that we should do when we're in impossible circumstances, that we should grab someone who shares our faith, someone who we trust, get in community and relationship with them, and cry out to God. I have a group of guys that I meet with every Monday morning. Uh, Good to see you guys, by the way. Mike's back from North Carolina. I hope you enjoyed that nice, warm, sunny weather. Uh, We meet up, uh, a few of us, every Monday morning, and I walk away always encouraged. Uh, I walk away always feeling like, yeah, we can handle this. Turns out, a lot of the things that I wrestle with are the same stuff that they do. Who knew? I'm not all alone. It's not a complicated formula. Get in community with other Christians and pursue God together. That's exactly what Hezekiah did. It's exactly what we should do. If you're wondering how Christian community is supposed to work, that's how it works. He does exactly what we should do. So Hezekiah and Isaiah pray, and watch what happens. Verse 21. And the Lord sent an angel, one angel, who annihilated all the fighting men and the commanders and officers in the camp of the Assyrian king. So he withdrew to his own land in disgrace. Uh, I actually found a picture of this particular angel, and uh, I think we could all agree he's pretty fierce. (laughs) He destroyed the entire army. God sends one angel who goes... Chuck Norris on the entire camp, uh, a lot of historians actually believe that it was kind of like a, some kind of like a, an infectious disease or something that, uh, that killed him off. I don't know how God did it, but uh, in any case, uh, the question I want to ask each of you and myself is, if I actually believed in a God who could do things like that, I remember we, I quoted a guy named Dallas Willard a couple weeks ago who said, to believe something is to act as if it were true. If I actually believed in a God who could respond to my prayers with that kind of power, would would it change the way I live? Would it change my life? Uh, The answer for me is definitely. Uh, If I actually believed, would it change my life? Would 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 I go out the door and trust that nothing could stand against God, that the things that I'm wrestling with are actually not that big a deal for him, that he actually has it under control? Now, listen... Whatever comes against you today, whatever it is, whatever comes against you today, it cannot undo God's plans for you. It's probably going to take you on the roundabout way, probably not the direction that you wanted to go. Uh, but when God says the battle's over, it's over. It can't undo his plans for you. So this, so Isaiah comes along, he's, he's the prophet while all of this is happening. Isaiah had actually a very long ministry under several different kings. And uh, this is what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. It is a vision of God. And it's pretty descriptive, so you can get your mind's eye working as he describes it. I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. It's an impressive robe. Above him were seraphim. These are angels. Each with six wings, with two wings, they covered their faces, with two, they covered their feet, and with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Does that sound pretty, like, fantastically majestic to you, like, way outside of my normality? Like, so, uh, just so fantastic that it's, like, foreign and almost weird to you? Uh, Good. Because if it sounded normal, he wouldn't be much of a God. If God was just, like, if the full extent of his glory was all things that I could easily wrap my head around, that wouldn't be very impressive. If it sounds incredible to you, that's a good thing. If it's beyond your normal. Now, at the risk of oversimplifying things, I'm just going to say this. It's because God is set apart from us. He is holy. His reality is beyond my finite understanding. When when Isaiah sees God's majesty, listen to his reaction. Isaiah 6, 5. He said, woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. I'm destroyed, meaning I'm about to die. I shouldn't be here right now. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among an un, a people of unclean lips. And yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah quickly realizes, whoa, I do not belong here. I'm out of my league. Now, Isaiah is not like a sketchy guy, right? He's, he's God's messenger. Uh, like his level of holiness is beyond probably any of us. And yet Isaiah realizes, compared to God, I am unworthy, Notice his primary descriptor. It's not big, it's not awesome, it's not powerful. The primary descriptor for God in this picture is holy. Now, a lot of people might think of that as a negative descriptor for someone who's sort of a religious, kind of arrogant, mean person. But if I think of that as negative, that's actually my problem. Because the truth is, I'm just like Isaiah. Compared to God, he is holy, I'm very much not. God is perfect and powerful beyond our imagination. Now, I mention that because here in this situation, you have uh, all these people who are terrified. You have the Assyrians marching against them. And yet there's two people, Hezekiah and Isaiah, who got a glimpse of the reality of God, and they realized, we need to change course. We need to change direction. Hezekiah and uh, Isaiah, they had a different view of how everyone else viewed God. Uh, you might have noticed this phrase in the Bible to this point, the people often refer to God as the God of our ancestors. Uh, sometimes we think of God as the God of our ancestors. You know, God who used to do stuff in the Bible like a long time ago? Uh, we think of God that way, but, but these two men realize, no, no, God is living among us, that he actually wants to be our God right here in this moment, and we're messing around with all these silly little trinket gods. Uh, that's the same message for us. We are them. He's right here in our lives in this moment. I hope that in some way today, you'll get a glimpse of a God who is living among us. Too often, we just view him as the God who used to do stuff or the God we read about in the Bible. But take courage because he's right here, right now. When Isaiah saw God, he realized how unclean he was. He realized how sinful he was. But in the next verse... Uh, verse, uh, verse seven, um, an angel comes and takes a coal and it says, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Um, coal is a cleansing agent, a purifying agent. See, God doesn't point out our sin and point out Isaiah's sin so that he'd realize how horrible he was. Or so that you'd realize what a failure you are. That's not why God points out our sin. It's so that we'll realize how awesome and gracious and loving he is. That's why he points out our sin and our failure. And When we reach the point of understanding that the gap between me and God is so vast. When we get to that point, we understand the gap between my standard and his standard is massive. Then we've reached the beginning of understanding his grace. Understanding his mercy. Uh, There's a guy named Tim Keller. Tim Keller is one of the great minds in Christianity today. History will remember him that way. He says this. uh, He says that the gospel can be boiled down to this, that you are, in fact, more wretched and more sinful than you ever dared to dream that you are. Welcome to Center Church. (laughs) But at the same time, you're more loved and more accepted than you could ever even imagine possible. How crazy is that? That's when we realize, man, I must be so valuable to God. So Isaiah changes the tone of the story. Uh, It's kind of an interesting, just a little fun fact here. There's 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. There's 66 books in the Bible. Uh, 37 of the chapters of the books in the Bible are the Old Testament. They're about the law. They're about the people's behavior. All kinds of different things along those lines. And then 29 of them are about redemption through Christ. They're about the Savior. Uh, In the book of Isaiah, the first 37 chapters are about the law. They're uh, about the people's idolatry, about the people needing to change course, and then the last 29 are about the coming Savior. Kind of a kind of a cool thing how that played out. Uh, I just want to end our time together by reading a portion of what Isaiah said about Jesus, about 700 years before Jesus was born, before Jesus lived a sinless life, before he died on the cross and rose from the dead uh, to give us to give us life. Uh, I just want to read a little bit of what Isaiah said about the coming Messiah. It's on 220, page 228 in the story, if you're following along. It's Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 2. It's talking about the coming Messiah, about Jesus. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed." For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand." After he suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors or sinners. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the guilty. Do me a favor and stand with me if you would. Uh, I'm going to ask Jess and the band to, uh, to come real quick. Uh, listen, if you're guilty, you're exactly the person that God sent his son into the world to die for. If you feel like you're farther away from God than you should be, you're exactly the person that Jesus came to draw near. So do me a favor. If you have one of these on your seat, one of these cards, just grab that really quick. Uh, on the bottom, number three, it says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of blank. For there is greater power in me. It's a paraphrase of 2 Chronicles 32 7, a personalization, if you will. Um, we're going to sing a couple songs and worship and just celebrate what Jesus has done for us. Uh, would you, at some point in the next few minutes while we're here, would you fill in that blank? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of blank. What is the thing that Satan is coming at you with to try and discourage you, to try and convince you that it's over, that you're going to lose, to try and distract you from God's plan A for your life, to try to keep you from noticing the cliff that you're headed towards? Would you fill in that blank and take courage today? By doing that, really what we're doing, what I hope to accomplish is is to remind ourselves that Satan can't undo God's plans for you. He doesn't have that kind of authority. That's above his pay grade. And this is our way of reminding him of that by filling in the blank. No, no, you can't win. You're going to lose. We're reminding him that that's not his place. It takes courage to be hopeful. But today, you have every reason to be hopeful because God is you. He's not just the God of the Bible who used to do stuff a long time ago. He's ready to fight on your behalf. So let's just take a couple minutes and just worship him and enjoy his presence.